0: hello and welcome to pod rocket we are live in our brand new podcast studio it's we have all the fancy microphones and everything. it's, it's, it's pretty cool and to celebrate our first ever recording in our in our studio we have Luca Palmieri here um, Luca is a principal engineer at True layer and the author of zero to production in rust how's it going Luca
1: hello it's going really well thanks for having me I feel. Kind of important now knowing that it's your first episode in the new studio uh, but it's a pleasure <laughs> to be on the show
0: yeah so i'm guessing today we're going to talk about rust um and you know rust generally i think of as more of a back you know in the context of web development something you use more on the back end but i do know a lot of folks starting to use rust on the front end as well so would love to talk a bit about both uh, if that works for you
1: well um i'm Mostly an expert on the back end, uh, but I know a little bit what's moving around on the front end, so I can provide you with what I know in that bit as well.
0: Awesome. So can you tell us a bit um a bit about Zero to production in Rust? Kind of what was your goal in, in writing it and um you know, why why should folks uh, I, I think you have to you purchase it. So why should folks uh, purchase the the PDF and learn about Rust? Yeah, sure. So the
1: book uh, was born a little bit by chance. Um, so we started to use Rust for the backend, yet a true layer. And we realized that actually there weren't a lot of resources to go from I've read the Rust book and to actually I know how to use Rust for the backend development. And that's because Rust wasn't necessarily associated with backend development in the first place. Uh, there was a lot of buzz around Rust for system programming, usage in contexts where usually you would go for C or C. And so, RESTful backend development was a, an area of interest, but it was not mature from a documentation perspective. And furthermore, a lot of things had changed around that time because of Async Await, which was released in 2019. So, the whole ecosystem was going through very fast, uh, fast paced changes. And so, as I was onboarding different developers onto our projects, so the stuff we were doing at TrueLayer, I realized that actually a lot of those things could be codified. So I just probed a little bit for interest, and it turned out that actually there was demand uh, for intermediate-slash-advanced material in the back-end ecosystem. And so I wrote down what I believe was um, the minimum curriculum of what you should be able to do to say you're able to use for us in this space, and that's how the book was born. And Originally, it was just a series of blog posts uh, until I got to the point where I actually decided, well, actually, this is serious, so I'm going to make it a book. And the reception has been good so far, as you mentioned thousand copies, a 1,500 copies, um, which was much more than I was expecting, especially given the book is still in progress.
2: Yeah, it seems like uh, on the the reaction I I found on the Rust community was very positive. I think people like to have more in-depth resources, especially on the Rust community. Uh, They really like their documentation.
1: It's one of the things that the community is proud of. And there's been an effort. I mean, Rust to produ- uh, 0 to production is not the only one. Um, there are new books coming out in these months, uh, which try to fill the gap in different spaces. Uh, Rust in Action was finished just uh, a few weeks ago, I think, was officially published, and that does it for system programming. It's a new for- uh, There's a new book from John, who does the same, just for knowledge of the language, so going back into the internals. So it feels like the early ecosystem kind of landed on the fact that beginner documentation at this point is very solid. And now the next step that needs to happen is actually making sure that people can be productive in the subdomains that they actually want to use the language for. So the challenge is one step ahead, so to say, in terms of documentation and just knowledge basis. Uh,
2: I, I like the idea of like the re- re- a real world guide. I, I also know that, like, uh, w- what's the saying, at least in the JavaScript community, whenever you publish uh, a book, it's obviously the moment that it gets published. Do you see yourself like updating this like every year or so, or like what do you think?
1: So well, as always, baby steps. First step is finishing it. Uh, then we can talk about updating it. Um, I do feel like the book is going to be a living product. Now, of course, once you finish it and you do a printed edition, the printed edition is going to have a life cycle. Uh, that's not something you can update every week. But I do see myself keeping that up to date as we go forward year by year which might mean also the writing parts of it, as frameworks changes and patterns evolve. Um, that's something I took into account when I decided to embark uh, on this specific journey. And it has happened even while I was writing it. So large parts of it have had to be rewritten and updated to just style differently as things changed.
0: And so looking at Rust in general, like why should someone who's maybe familiar with backend development and JavaScript or Python or Ruby... like? What advantages do you get by learning Rust and and building your backends
1: in Rust? That's a very interesting topic. And I think it's where a lot of miscomprehension and misunderstandings usually lay when people try to bounce the proposal using Rust in the backend or just in web development in general, uh, because people associate Rust with performance. And so they say, well, actually in most cases, business applications and enterprise programmers do not need performance. Like we do not need to be fast. And that's actually when Rust ex- excels. It's not about speed in backend development, it's about domain modeling. So it's actually being able to go and build a satisfactory domain a satisfactory model of the domain you're trying to solve using the type system to make sure that as much of what you learned about the domain is actually encoded in the model. This reduces the number of tests you need to write and makes sure that a bunch of things which usually happen in enterprise projects actually happen safely. I'm thinking specifically about evolution of the model and application itself. So algebraic e, algebraic types, okay, enums, are extremely powerful to model finite state machines. And actually most of the entities that you have in a system are usually finite state machines. There are objects that evolve through a finite life cycle, which you are trying to model. So for example, you might go for a user. User is a pending user, when he signs up, then it becomes an active user, then it might get suspended. Uh, you might have a newsletter, goes from a draft to a published newsletter to an archived newsletter. All those things you try to model inside the code. You can model with types using Rust type system. You can move a lot of runtime checks to compile time checks. And then you can make it so that when a new developer actually arrives on a code base and they're actually working on that code base, the compiler helps them in doing the right thing. So they don't feel overwhelmed, for example, by picking up a dynamic code base and having to kind of reverse engineer in their in their head what goes here and what depends on this one, it becomes a lot easier as well to build abstractions because there's a lot more can be encoded into the type signature, which makes it so that it's safer to build higher towers of abstractions on top of one another. Now, this is not unique of Rust, of course, uh, like like Rust is not the most advanced type system out there. Uh, functional languages, Askin and a bunch of others have done this before, but I think that Rust strikes a particularly interesting balance between expressiveness, so the things you can do, and pragmaticness. So actually being able to teach that effectively without getting lost necessarily into the theory that surrounds type systems and what they can do. And so you get options, you get results. Uh, you get a lot of things that usually are obfuscated in mono terminology. actually distilled down to things that people can use for the value they provide and then maybe once they've actually mastered them, they can go back and understand what that looks like. But the focus is on getting stuff done. And I think that's very peculiar. to Rust community is a very good trait that I think is, would be beneficial if they maintain as they go forward.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, are there any domains f- specifically for the backend uh, web uh, area where you would not recommend Rust? Or I guess like uh, use cases that you would recommend another technology over Rust?
1: backend is a great domain right so it's that domain where most languages can succeed if the person using them is sufficiently capable of using that language Um, even languages you might not expect being able to succeed in that domain so the choice is not necessarily around the language unless you have specific requirements but then it's very difficult to give indication if you have specific requirements because we need to go and discuss the specific requirements but generally speaking your choice of technology will be influenced by the people you have on the team, so what they're knowledgeable into and what they can do, Uh, the type of ecosystem you are integrating into. Uh, If you're trying to do something which is DevOpsy, and so it goes into the cloud-native ecosystem, perhaps goes as synergies with a lot of projects. So you might be able to leverage a bunch of libraries because uh, the projects you want to integrate into are within that programming language. So it's a case-by-case decision, so to say. I mean, I've done stuff, or we were about to do stuff and got, um, where we had to integrate with SOAP APIs, .NET was a great fit because it happens to have a lot of the libraries that you need, which in Rust do not exist. Now, we didn't actually do that, but we were fairly clear that it was not going to be Rust because we'd have to bootstrap all the libraries that we didn't have. So for specific use cases, you always want to look at the ecosystem that you need to leverage and how mature it is.
0: In Rust, like what is the state of, kind of backend frameworks and ORMs and all of the supporting tooling that you know, helps make it so easy nowadays to write a, a backend in Python or JavaScript or Java?
1: Well, maybe it's not as easy. Uh, I think that that's a fair warning that people need to uh, to read before the deep dive. Uh, but I think the bigger blocks of the ecosystem are there. Um, so from a yeah, web framework perspective, you have Web, which has been going on for a few years at this point in time has been used extensively in production applications, including ours. Uh, It's very stable. There's a large community. Uh, It's fairly well documented in terms of examples. Um, Some parts of use a bit more love, But overall, if you want to get something done, you can get it done. Um, So you're not gonna be blocked by the framework missing capabilities that you need to actually fulfill a use case. But it's not necessarily the most, the easiest uh, web framework on board on. There's a lot of system knowledge that you need to have, and running middleware is fairly complicated. Then you have Rocket, uh, which I think in many ways is the easiest to pick up. So it's the one where the developer experience is the best, but it's been stuck for a very long time, I think more than a year at this point, uh, in moving between 0.4 or 0.5, so moving between a synchronous first design to an asynchronous first design, and of course asking People to depend on master, it's not necessarily a palatable proposition, especially in a a business environment. But now, the final cutter release, it looks very nice. Uh, The economics are still good, even if they move it over to a sink. So I've been looking over it and it's looking solid. So it's definitely an option. And it's the one probably that goes the more Rails like uh, between the web framework and the Rust ecosystem. So the one. tries to be a tiny bit more opinionated, and has a lot more building blocks that you can just put together to get something that works. But other frameworks are a little bit more micro frameworks, so they're more like Flask or FastAPI, so less opinionated. They just take care of the HTTP layer, and then the rest is pretty much on your own, which is something you might like or something you might not like, depending on your tastes and what you need to do. And I think last but not least is Warp coming from the Tokyo ecosystem. Once again, very experienced maintainers being used uh, quite extensively. Fairly unique uh, design. So very similar to tower. So modeling the entire application is basically a function of the request that outputs the response. Uh, makes a button usage of the type system to compile check a bunch of things, which is useful. On the flip side, can be a little bit daunting and errors can be quite confusing for newcomers. Um, so that's why we have steered away from it, for example, for usage at layer. But depending on your maturity and what you're trying to do, all three are viable. Uh, it's mostly a matter of taste. But I don't think we still we have yet Django or Rails in the Rust ecosystem. I think we're far away uh, from that level of productivity and just like shopping from a shelf and getting an application done in a couple of hours. On the RM side, uh, probably an no ORM per se. Uh, I'm not sure we have at the moment, uh, as it qualifies for, for example, looking at Active Record or Entity Framework. The closest you might find is Diesel. Um, Diesel is very interesting, very powerful library. So it compile, it detects at compile time most of your queries. So it's able to build a model of the query and verify that it has any type checks and you get a representation in code of your schema. And it also takes care of handling migrations. Um, fairly useful. Of course, once again, a lot of type magic in there. Um, so from time to time, you might get errors which are not the easiest to parse if you are a beginner. And so as you often have with ORM-like tools, if you actually get into complicated queries, they might get more in the way than they actually provide you. But I don't think this is specific of the library. This is more of um, the type of function it fulfills. If you are more of a SQL type of guy, then you can go for something like uh, SQLX, where you get the right SQL. Uh, they have some fairly magical macros that are gonna execute the SQL queries against the database at compile time, or prepare the SQL queries at compile time against the database, so they're able to infer types, and they're able to check that you're columns that exist, uh, that you're passing the right types, and more or less that your queries are sensible. Uh, it's not particularly opinionated, and we found that it works fairly well for us. And it's what I usually recommend. If people have a minimal level of familiarity with SQL, because it allows them to shape uh, the uh, persistent layer as they see fit. But of course, they must use.
2: That's an impressive list of features, actually, uh, and it seems like you have a lot of options in pretty much every every category I can think of. But I guess, like like you said, we're just missing the the Rails alternative. Uh, like when you look at a new open source project in Rust, in the Rust community, at least, like what do you look for in a Rust project?
1: It depends. Um, I guess the first assessment that I usually make is what I need to use this for and how difficult will it be to remove this if I need to, um, so that changes the way I assess the project. Uh, well, let's assume I'm shopping for something which I think is going to be important. So it's going to be something that I can't easily change later in the project. I usually look for um, adoption, as you usually do for libraries. So are people using this? Uh, and ideally, they're using it in production context. So I've actually battle-tested this solution. It's not always possible to check this. Um, so you go for proxy measures, uh, which usually is, are the libraries using this library? Or talks or articles written by businesses actually using the library? Uh, then you check the order. I guess that's the other one. Um, so you go and actually check if they've done previous work in the Rust community, if you've used libraries that actually were designed by them and you've used them proficiently. And how they managed usually pull requests and issues in the past, especially if something you're going to rely on. None of this I appreciate is Rust specific. It's usually just good vendor management uh, where you go and take on an open source dependency. From a Rust specific perspective, uh, there's usually a basic level of assessment of um, Compile time dependencies, like what are they bringing in? Is this going to make the project much heavier to compile? Unsafe is usually something we check for. Uh, Is this making extensive use of unsafe? Is this something we should be concerned about? Should we audit the unsafe parts uh, for security purposes? This, of course, depends what the library is doing. Um, And is the library tested? That's usually another one. So quick checks of making sure that there's a CI pipeline, the test looks sensible, and we're not gonna find out that a new release broke and then we have problems to solve. So vendor management, like nothing more, nothing less than vendor management.
0: One thing that caught my eye in this in the um, notes on chapter one of, of the book is the idea of security auditing and you know some of as I understand it, like one of the advantages Rust can have when helping you build your backend is giving you some more kind of, um, you know, better security posture out of the box. Could you, could you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you can attack the problem on the different angles. On one side, you have security coming from mismanagement of memory, right? Uh, and that makes Rust ideal from an auditing perspective because you can focus as a smaller subset of the code base you're actually auditing. So you can focus on the parts which go outside of safe Rust, and that makes it easier, for example, if you have an internal function who's auditing the libraries you're using to actually go in and make some, uh, make some checks. The other thing is more cultural, uh, I believe, and that uh, is that in the Rust community, there's, there's established culture around misuse resistance APIs. So designing interfaces which are difficult to misuse. So they're taught about with the beginner in mind and the person who's not an expert in the domain was actually trying to use the library. That usually makes it so if you model your domain properly and you actually put the right constraints in, that has a cascading effect on the security because a lot of things that usually are possible, especially when you use primitive types and you'll have a lot of leeway suddenly become impossible. Not because you're designing for security, but you get that as a side effect. Now, nothing is going to defend you from a misdesigned JWT validation routine. Um, so logical errors which lead to exploitable security vulnerabilities are still possible. Uh, so you still need to look out for those.
2: It's still pretty impressive that it manages to do so much, uh, like a radical departure from like other languages, and specifically Important for the web web community, uh, where security is even more in the news, <laughs> and uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of, of companies adopting Rust. Like I, I remember reading recently that uh, Discord switched from Go to Rust, and I guess like as more more and more people are starting to talk about Rust, we'll get get more of that. What do you think? Like, like the blockers? I guess the things preventing companies from switching to Rust. Like, what what can Rust do better to you know take over the world? <laughs>
1: Wow, that's a bold mission, I'm uh, sure I'm I, I married to that one. Uh, but in general, like let's look at it from a company perspective. And that's something we did, for example. like We didn't start as a Rust company. Uh, we still aren't a Rust company, We're a polyglot um, technology business. So if you're a company looking to adopt a language, uh, you look into a variety of factors. Uh, first one is some of the ones we already talked about. Um, so you look into the ecosystem. Does this ecosystem contain the building blocks I need to do and fulfill the business function that I need to deliver? So that's step number one. And at this stage, we can say that Rust does, uh, although from time to time you might actually need to go out there and build some things yourself that you might usually shop, with, shop for. So smaller libraries, utilities, upstream a couple of PRs. You need to be a tiny bit more end zone into the ecosystem, but it's not massive, and you're not adopting Rust uh, pre-1.0, so it's global. The second one is talent. Like if you're building a business and you want to adopt a programming language, you either need to have expertise already. So you need to have employees who are familiar uh, with using the programming language. You can have skill new hires, or you need to hire people who know the technology. Now, just by the virtue of Rust being a young programming language, you're not going to find a lot of senior developers out there who have done Rust for five years in productions. Because nobody or very few people were running Rust five years ago in production. So as you see at this point in time, and that's a trend I've been seeing a lot for the past 12 months, there's a lot of companies actually training internal stuff. Um, So going to consulting companies who have expertise in Rust, actually organizing uh, workshops and upskilling sessions for their own employees, and then starting to hire externally. of course, when you're hiring somebody, you usually try to put them in a position to succeed. Um, so if you're hiring them and they didn't know the language and they know the domain, it's gonna be tough. But then if you can teach them the language and they know the domain, that's an easy sell. If they know the language, you can teach them the domain, that's once again an easy sell. So I think this is just gonna solve itself quite naturally as like early adopters get into the market, they're gonna train up a bunch of engineers. Those engineers are gonna go somewhere else Scarcity is going to become less of a factor, and then hiring will become less of a factor. So, you're going to hire for us if you want to. At this point in time, specifically, it's, I think, quite a sweet spot to be on this specific technology because you're getting that wave of engineers who usually are fairly in tune with new technology. And so, you get a particular type of person that might be interesting for startups or scale ups. So, somebody who is a little bit more into staying up with the trends and just trying around a little bit the open source community. So you might get developers who are a little bit of a different profile of what you find, for example, in more established ecosystems. But that depends very much on what uh, type of qualities you're trying to select for. And what else do you have? Uh, Then you have also interoperability with existing languages. So am I going to be able to use this efficiently with the rest of my stack? This is usually not a massive problem, especially we're talking web and backends. Uh, usually we're running on uh, microservice architectures, so communication happens over the network. Not a big deal. And what's the last one I wanted to mention? Let's forget that there's the last one.
2: Right now, we're, we mostly do front-end, uh, exclusively do front-end, unless you count mobile, I guess. But telemetry is very important, we know, for back-end uh, services as well, and it's an area that we have talked about in the past, Andrean. Uh, can you talk about more about the state of telemetry in Rust and why that's so important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I spent the last six months working on telemetry. So uh, the state of telemetry in Rust is good. Um, and I, that boils down pretty much to the tracing rate uh, in the Tokyo ecosystem. What tracing has done, tracing has made it extremely easy um, for people to do structured instrumentation. So they be able to collect telemetry data structures as funds, which makes it very, very easy to then move from a tracing instrumentation to exporting open telemetry data, which is usually where the industry is going in the backend. And so that makes it fairly convenient if you have a Rust application to actually be exporting structured distributed traces um, to whatever you're using. So that could be Honeycomb, that could be Jaeger, that could be Zipkin. But that's the kind of data that you want if you're looking uh, to troubleshoot a microservice architecture. Because usually requests go through a bunch of different services, back and forth from time to time. And you want to be able to follow that call throughout. And the more you can capture structured data, which you get if you're doing structured logging, the more easily you can actually search through that data. and The more easily you can actually pinpoint where stuff is going wrong. And so if you combine tracing uh, with the supporting libraries and you combine it with derived macros, it actually becomes as easy as putting an instrument on top of a function to actually capture something which is a logical unit of execution inside the program. And if you do that consistently, then when you look at your traces, you actually look at the logical sequence of steps that you're going through to fulfill some kind of business process. And that makes it great for troubleshooting but also great for onboarding, I found from time to time. It's very, very powerful to give a new developer joining a team a complete trace that goes through the system and shows what it takes to do X. And then they can actually correlate that with the code base and easily build their own meta picture of the system. So it's good.
2: Is that uh, an area that you think Rust is like uniquely positioned for? Or is it just that uh, Rust allows you to do it in a nicer way? Or...
1: So yes and no. On one side, I think you get the benefit of arriving last. Um, so you arrive to uh, the telemetry problem after others have spent years thinking up the best ways of actually instrumenting applications. And then you have the unique window of opportunity to actually make that the default in an ecosystem. So then everybody benefits uh, from using the best in breed at this point in time paradigm to do instrumentation. So that's one side of the argument. The other side of the argument, I think, relates to the way Rust does error handling, uh, which actually makes it slightly easier to capture in a structured fashion some type of instrument, some type of information. The fact that Rust doesn't have exception, but Rust has errors values makes it slightly simpler to keep in check what is being handled where and what we're logging and how. And so that makes it easier to capture, for example, structured information about errors. Um, That's something we do a lot, for example is this service fa- this service is failing, okay? And I want to know why is it failing? But the most important thing I want to know at step zero is, is this failing because something that happened inside the service? Is this failing because of something that's happening in another service? So is it failing because it's trying to make a call to something else that is not working? And you can collect that by actually attaching metadata to your error. And you can make sure that all the errors have the metadata because the top level handler in your web framework actually forces the error returned by the handler to have that metadata. And so you know by actually building the framework internally that all the applications are going to have that information. And that's just because they're not going to compile if they don't. It's much more complicated to do the same if you're using exceptions. Uh, because the flow of propagation is implicit, you actually don't have a way to have those chalk points. Unless you have check exceptions, but then don't work with Java. And from what I hear, they're not necessarily lovely.
2: Yeah, that, that's quite convincing. Uh, like a lot of the other uh, problems that Rust solves, it solves it you know, at a high level with the language and just makes everything easier, it seems. <laughs> um, I think that's pretty much all we wanted to talk about. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at PodRocketPod Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Logrocket.